0: everybody and welcome to the Junction Church Podcast. We pray that this message inspires and encourages you. If you would like to find out any more information about us, then please visit our website at www.thejunctionchurch.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome along to church. We are uh, continuing with our Heart for the House series. And, and really this is a series where we're just talking about just as a people, just our heart for the house, just, just having just such a desire to see God's kingdom be built and, and also understanding what God's heart is for the house, what his, his desire to see the, the kingdom of God just be built up and, and, and see people's lives just sort of built and restored and just a great understanding of just, just heart for the house, a heart for what is going on in, in, in God's kingdom and uh, I'm going to start and read to you from Matthew 11 verses 28-30. I just believe that in this series, we, uh, we're going to just understand a little bit more of, of uh, what God built the church for, and what, it, what he intended it for. And because we know what he intended it for, by understanding that, we can better represent what, what, what he intended the church to be. So I'm going to read from Matthew uh, 11, 28-30. And it said, Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and uh, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you, is light. Now, I love that verse because it, it talks. To me, it talks about coming in from the storm. Uh, I, uh, as part of my job, I uh, go away uh, offshore from time to time, and uh, I, uh, I I go on board a, a vessel, a boat. You're not allowed to call it a boat, you get laughed at if you call it a boat, but it's a boat. Uh, but we call it a vessel, not one of those rigs. And so there's times when on our last my last trip, I was out in the Atlantic, and there was a couple of days where there was just storm conditions. And we sit on this boat and we are watching the waves just crash around us. They call it like the, the white horses. You watch the white horses gallop by. And but I'm on a very new boat, and it's so stable. It's incredible the the, the, the feat of engineering that you can sit on this boat this boat and you can look out from the bridge and you're quite high up and you just see these waves just fly past you and crash over the back deck and yet you stay relatively still. My, my great concern being offshore is that I'm going to be seasick and by being seasick I'll look less manly and, uh, <laughs> but fortunately the vessel saves me from that because it is so secure, it is so steadfast, it is so stable And when I think of the church, I think of it much like that. I think of it as a refuge from the storm. It is a refuge. And you know what? Everybody goes through seasons in their life where there is a storm that comes around you. And the church, the church is a sanctuary from that. It is a place where you can come and all are welcome and all belong. I'm going to read to you from Psalms 46 verse 1. It says, God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of of trouble. And that just that emphasizes that that idea that that it is a refuge, it is a place to come in from when, when when times are hard. But kind of the question I want to ask tonight is, is the house of God supposed to be like a sanitarium for those convalescing? Is it supposed to be a place for the brokenhearted to come and to, to nurse their wounds and sort of fest their regret? Is it, is it that place? Is it that place? A place where you convalesce, a place where you are broken and, and you just sort of find a way to cope? Well, I don't believe that. I don't believe that's what the church was called to be. If it were, where would be the hope? Where would be the opportunity for transformation? That's what the house of God is for. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, it says... If anyone, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is a message. That is a, that is a verse of transformation. The house of God is not a place to settle for the storm. It's a place to be transformed and renewed. I was, uh, a while ago, I was speaking with a really close friend who's, uh, who's unsaved. He doesn't go to church, but his wife does. And I was asking him, you know, why, why, do you think uh, why do you think your wife comes along to church? And he said, he said, he put forward this sort of theory. he didn't really understand, but he figured the only reason that she must come is, is as a way to sort of cope with life. Uh, he could see that just her belief in God had sort of given her strength and given her courage to, to deal with the hardships of life. But that said, he he still really saw it as a a coping mechanism, a way of compensating for any weaknesses or flaws she might have had within herself. Essentially, he said church was a crutch. It was a crutch for the weak. That's what he said. But I know his wife, and I don't see that at all. I don't see that in this woman. I see that she is actually someone who has embraced a relationship with God. And she's clung to that relationship during times of storm. And in spite of just being ridiculed and and sometimes isolated in it, that she has, on the strength of that relationship, been able to face and overcome her own shortcomings. She's been able to, beyond that, just stand up in circumstances of her life that, so that they didn't overwhelm her she was able to have strength in times of hardship and you know there's times in life you know we all have sort of a life experience some have more than others but you can look at situations unfold and an experience common sense might tell you that circumstances one will unfold in a certain way but Time and time and time again I saw that she would defy the odds. And why was it? Was it some tremendous strength of character? It was more just a tremendous belief in God. Just a wholehearted, whole life devoted to God. And just, a, just she just did not allow those situations to overwhelm her. She, those situations, she would not settle for the status quo. She kept on persisting until God broke through on her behalf. In 2 Corinthians... <laughs> 4 verse 8 to 10 it says, We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Though suffering through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. I don't believe that we're called just to survive. I believe we're called to conquer. And the question, the question that I want to tackle here this evening is, how does a defeated person rise again to triumph? How does a defeated person come in to the house of God, someone who feels as if everything important in their life has been torn away? How do they come in to the house of God and then return just a conqueror, a triumphant person, someone who has risen up? I uh, I love watching sports. Over Over the years, I've kind of followed different sports. Uh, I've kind of had just fads of of, of enjoying different kinds. But the thing that I enjoy most about sports, the sort of the aspect of it that is kind of prevalent in, in any kind of sport is the momentum swing. The momentum swing to me is one of the most enjoyable and entertaining aspects of any sport in that you can see that one side, one competitor, one uh, rival just dominate and and, and beat down and and, uh, pursue a rival only to see that rival turn it around and beat back. And see a victory come out of it, and that to me is exciting. I, I love watching. it. It's one of those genuine things. You can It's not. It's not fake. It's not. Uh, or it shouldn't be fake unless it's boxing. And uh, <laughs> but it's 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 exciting, and it's it's it, I, I've, I, it's, it's what I watch it for. Uh, and one of the one of my stark memories of it, one of my strongest memories, of quite a famous example, was in uh, 1999 in the Champions League final. Champions League, see some people know it, and it was the Champions League final and it was Bayern Munich taking on Manchester United. Now I'm not a big Manchester United fan, but I think everyone in the country was a Manchester United fan that weekend, because it was the British team. The British team going after, I think it was, they were going after the treble, they were going after three trophies, and this was like the culmination of what would have been and what still is the most successful uh, season of, a, of an English club, and they were going against the mighty Bayern Munich. And I remember going around to my friend's house, there was a whole bunch of us went around and we sat down and watched this match and we'd been anticipating it all week and the match got off and Bayern Munich scored almost immediately and, and just we were so deflated and it got even worse because for basically the entire match, Bayern Munich just battered Manchester United and we were sitting there and it was just... We just started talking about other things. It, we almost like gave up, to be honest, because it looked so one-sided. It didn't look like there was any hope of a comeback. But in extra time, in injury time—sorry, in injury time—just as it looked as if the game was winding down, Manchester United got a penal, uh, got a corner and scored like a really scrappy goal, but equalised and we went berserk. We were running. We ran outside into the garden, into the street. We were, I mean, I'm telling you, we were just hugging each other, dancing, just <laughs> screaming because it was, it was like we'd been so downtrodden for so long and then it was like, wow, we're back in it. And we came in and almost as soon as we came back in, Manchester United had another corner and almost with the very last kick of the game, they, they scored the winning goal and we just went berserk again. I think we woke up the entire neighbourhood. We ran out into the street. We were hugging and kissing. And No, we weren't doing that. Uh, but, but we were going mad because we'd never seen anything. It was so intense, so exciting to watch a team just with all of that on the stake, with the stakes being so high, come back from absolutely nothing. To go home losers, but to come back winners. It was the Bayern Munich uh, players were crying on the turf. It was a great experience. And... <laughs> and you know but there was something really exciting but i think i was hooked on momentum swing at that point there it was uh, it was very exciting and there's momentum swings in all sorts of swings of life and one of the one of the ones within the bible that i want to talk about is peter peter the disciple peter the apostle peter who was uh, jesus christ's sort of close confidant a friend a best friend a dear friend and just as jesus was being taken away to be crucified. Peter, who had, who had just said, I will stand by you through thick and thin. You can rely on me. Everyone else might desert you, but I will be there. And at his moment, at that moment where his heroism could be revealed, where, his, where the quality of him could be, could be understood and, and, and shown for all to see, he bottled it. He just bottled it. The, the, the fear got on top of him. And, and, and on three occasions, he denied even knowing Jesus. That, I don't even know the man. I don't even know him. And at the end of it, he just the despair there was upon him as Jesus went to the cross. He couldn't even—he couldn't even go and watch. He couldn't even go and be there with him. He was so downtrodden, so despair, so much despair on the side, feeling like he'd just let down—not just just, just a, the bestest friend, the most the most loving person he'd ever met, the most inspirational figure he'd ever had the privilege to be around—and he let him down. He'd let him down. He'd taken back every word that he'd said. But yet, just. A small handful of times, just a matter of weeks later, a matter of weeks after this had happened, there is Peter standing <coughs> on the streets, on the, on the steps of Jerusalem, preaching Jesus to the masses of uh, Jerusalem, just, just preaching. And, and on that day, it says in Acts 2 verse 41, it says, Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. It was a massive change in that man. In just, just a short period, he was standing and preaching about Jesus in Jerusalem. He was standing in front of the same crowds that had probably just weeks before been chanting for Jesus to be crucified. Those same crowds, those same masses of people that he had been so terrified of. He was standing up there preaching and just testifying about Jesus and who Jesus was. What a, what a massive swing. What a huge pendulum swing to go from the lowest of the lows, feeling like an absolute loser, to standing up and being there on the day of Pentecost, the day where the church was born, where, where the Holy Spirit came down and just sort of uh, just just birthed the church. What? Where was the? Where did the pendulum swing? Where was the axis of that swing? Why? Where did? How did he go from all the way down there to all the way up here? Well, I want to read an account from uh, after Jesus, after he was resurrected on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus had a talk with Peter. And it says in John 21, verse 15 to 17, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Jesus told him, uh, Jesus told him. (laughs) Jesus repeated the question. Uh, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Now on the face of it, on the face of it, it, it appears as if Jesus is asking the same three questions as a way of sort of erasing those three denials. That's what it, that what it appears to be, and, and but I I have my doubts that that's actually what's happened. See, see, God, he doesn't need to. If someone sinned three times, it can still he just needs to forgive you. You know, it just takes one word from God to be forgiven. You know, you only need to be asked by God once to be commissioned. It may have been you know, it maybe it was symbolic to signify Peter's redemption, but, but wouldn't that be kind of like Robert rubbing salt into the wounds? I, I don't believe that's God's style. In fact, the first two times that Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, he used the Greek word agape. And agape is love, but what it means is unconditional love. Unconditional love. But the two times that Peter responded to him, he used the Greek word philio. And philio doesn't mean unconditional love. It means like brotherly and friendship love. And so what's the difference? Well, the difference is that unconditional love is to put put the object of your affections before absolutely everything else. It is unconditional. But brotherly love is, is to put... Nothing but yourself before another. It's 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 close to it, but when the rubber hits the road, when fear takes over, you're going self-preservation. So we are we are only really capable of loving one thing unconditionally, and often that is ourselves. Uh, but that third time, the third time that Jesus asked him, he actually used the word filio. He said, "Do you know? Do you love me like a brother? Do you love me, you know, uh, as a friend?" And Peter again responded. With, with that same filial word I love you like a brother and my, my belief is that Peter must have felt so absolutely unworthy to use the word unconditional love yeah. like after his actions I don't think it was a fact that he didn't want to love God didn't want to love Jesus unconditionally I just think he felt like if I said that I'd be a fraud like I don't feel as if that, if, if, if I said it that it would be genuine and authentic because my actions have betrayed that how could I possibly say that even though I want to say it so much. Which is why when that third time when Jesus said, Hey Luke, do you love me like a brother? It hurt him the most because he knew. He knew so desperately that he wanted to tell Jesus, I love you unconditionally. But he was, he was broken. He wasn't perfected. See, Jesus didn't set Peter a standard that he couldn't reach before he could use him. He didn't say that because he said, Go feed my lambs. Go feed my sheep. Go and love the church. Actually, it was in his brokenness. It was in his pain. It was in his despair that God met him and asked him to serve the church. It wasn't in his like full restoration. It wasn't like in his shining gown and you know, perfection that, that when God had just sort of set him totally on a new course that he was uh, totally freed from that. He was actually totally broken. He was hurt. He was in pain. And yet God used him at that moment. He wasn't the finished article. He wasn't the finished article, and yet God said, I'm going to use you. See, actually, Peter made the same mistake further on in his his ministry. He continued in his ministry, but he made similar mistakes. He allowed fear of people to influence the decisions he made. But guess what? God used him. He had the same frailties, but what transformed was his mind. He allowed his mind to be transformed. He knew that although he was flawed, God could still use him. See, on Pentecost, when Peter and the others were meeting together and the Holy Spirit just descended and birthed the new church, on his his day that he he stood and he preached and 3,000 people came to the church, he was the same man with the same flaws, but a renewed mind. See, Peter's life demonstrated God's knack for using those who've lost their way to effect great change. Amen? amen, amen. I get someone up on keys I'm going to finish in just a moment see god God isn't worried about whether you are sorted out or whether you're a mess. If he was the church would never do anything. The church would never go anywhere and it would never affect any change. It would be just a home for the broken. What He requires are those who are willing and prepared to allow God's transformational power to work in their life. People who will make his house their home and in that home allow him to talk into their lives. See, God will use the people around you, the people in your lives to to ask those questions to draw out those answers. Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than the temporary pleasures Of this world? Will your love for me extend to other people around you whom I love, but they don't know me yet? These are the questions that that God asks us. And in facing these questions, in wrestling with these questions, we get closer to God's will for our lives. See, unconditional love is where our focus shifts from our will to His. Amen? Amen? Amen. See, the church is not a home for the broken but it is a launchpad for the redeemed. The church is a tapestry of imperfect lives fulfilling the perfect will of God. Come to Him as you are, not who you think He wants you to be. He is the one who does the perfecting, not us. See, I think we we wrestle with this so much and we feel like we we come into church. Even the decision to step into church can be such a difficult one because we think, I'm not perfect. I'm not sorted out. I have so much junk in my life. God's not asking that you don't have junk in your life. God expects you to have junk in your life. God used people all throughout the Bible who had junk in their life. What he's asking is, do you want him to? to work upon your life do you want him to to affect change we all have areas of change all areas that we desire to be changed things that when we look at ourselves in the mirror we don't allow anybody to see that stuff we keep that stuff hidden away but we know it's there and let me tell you God knows it's there but God doesn't sit there and judge you much like we judge ourselves where we have hurt and we have regret and we have shame See, God has a heart saying, say, look, hey, come with me. Come with me. Come with me. Let me do something about that. Let me take you on a journey. Let me show you some things. Let me ask you some questions. And you won't even sit there and just figure that stuff out. What happens is you just go on the journey that God has for you. And on that journey, you'll find that junk just falling away. Just falling off. Like as if you've got a big truck, all piled up with rubble and junk. And as you drive and on that journey, that stuff just falls off. Because God's replacing that stuff with Him and the good things He has for your life. And the promises He has for your life. The opportunities He has for your life. And what happens is your life doesn't have room for those things anymore. It only has room for Him. And in that, you find fulfillment, you find God, you find just a peace a purpose, a destiny in Jesus. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or you'd like to find out contact information or service times, then don't forget to visit our website www.junctionchurch.com. God bless.